Good morning. How are you doing? So we're doing law. We're looking at Jesus in the Old Testament, these echoes and shadows of Jesus, who he was, and how it comes through in the Old Testament. Uh, I think if you remember, I don't know if it was said here, or I've read this, but for so long, scholars sort of said, well, a lot of this prophetic pictures of Jesus was, you know, it was written kind of after the time, and these books were laid down, and then some shepherd boy threw a stone that cracked a jar, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and that contained so many of these scriptures, dated so long ago, far, far predating Christ. And this morning, we're going to be looking at law, I said that, so... Uh, We're going to be looking at how the law is a shadow of Christ. And uh, this week I I had a conference at work. I was out of the office for a a couple of days. So my outline this morning, just to give you an idea of where I'm going, I just want to talk about uh, law and promise, the promise of the law, what it promised his people. Then I want to reflect a little bit on human history, and we're going to do our museum trip, okay, because I did some research for that. And then I want to talk about a greater covenant and how the law was a foreshadow of a greater covenant. Okay. So this morning, uh, I'll tell you about my conference. This morning, uh, sorry, last week I was at a conference. Uh, I went up to East London. It's the Excel Centre. I don't know if you know it. It's near London City Airport. It's a really big conference centre. It's full of UCL students actually having their exams. And uh, I didn't miss that. So I had a couple of days out of the office to go to the conference. Uh, there was loads of speakers, over 200 speakers. And uh, in the mornings, they had these really focus tracks where they invited some of the top experts in the world, in, in the field. Um, and this is about data and analytics, uh, but cross industries. And these guys were just giving their perspectives on what's going to happen um, in, you know, what's going on in the industry, what's going to happen in the future a bit. Uh, it's a really fascinating conference someone like me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I wasn't talking. I just sat back and enjoyed it. Uh, it's really flashy. They have this big stage. There's a couple of thousand people there, I reckon. And you're up in these auditoriums. There's big lights. There's music. TV screens as big as your house. No joke. The speakers come on. And then they speak. Really kind of big atmosphere. And we had this one guy who comes up. And his job title... And my wife said this is very conflicted. He was historian and futurist. That's his job title. It's very cool. It's very funny talk. It's very interesting. Uh, he talked about the history of invention and the unintended consequences uh, of, of what things happened when people invented something and something else happened that they didn't really expect. He had the whole study of it. Another uh, talk we did was from a, an analytics consulting company, and they were talking about uh, advertising, and you can imagine these, co- these talks are pretty good, right? If you've got an advertising person and they were involved in doing a talk, it's very flashy. It was, it was showing uh, how personalized advertising was working, and uh, they were targeting tr- people who are interested in travel on their phone. They look at it, this, this uh, app, and they could basically take photos of your local area, match it with an area you're interested in going, like Sutton and Egypt. And uh, they, they had these really amazing pictures of how something down your road looked like something in Egypt, but tagged over the top was your local airport, the nearest flight, the cheapest flight, so that you could just click a button and you could get there. Uh, very alluring. Uh, 
They're very visually stunning, and, and there's some of these talks, I want to go back and see them. I get a CD or I get an online login, I think, in the next few days um, to log on and, and look back over them. But there's this one talk, I'm not sure I'm going to tell you much about it. Um, it was, there was a, a very, very smart lady from uh, Oxford, professor and lawyer. And uh, I tell you, I'm glad that she's doing this, not me. She's kind of got our backs on this. But she was looking at um, this title... Privacy, identity, and autonomy in the age of big data and AI. That's a really kind of big title. In other words, the stuff you click on your phone, how private is that? What's going on, you know? You don't really realize what you're giving away when you use your phone, really. It's quite an interesting field. But, I mean, it was good, right? But when you've watched a talk by a marketing guy with lots of amazing pictures, and then you see this lady with these pictures of legal documents, court cases, and stuff like that. It's not the most exciting. Sorry if there's a lawyer here. I mean, if it pays your mortgage, brilliant. And I know people enjoy different things. I don't know about you, when you get your iPhone and you get this 20 pages of T's and C's you scroll through to get to the OK, I don't run home and tell my son, who's just down there, I don't tell him, hey, hey, son, have you seen iOS 21? Clause 4.7? Man, I tell you, it's very cool. It's not, it's not really like that. T's and C's are just that thing you get through. And uh, do you renew your car or home insurance and print out the 10-page legal cover notice and take it back to read? Not often. Let's look at Psalm, Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And verse 167, I have obeyed your statutes, for I love them greatly. It's a whole psalm that extols the psalmist's love of the law. And Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man, verse 1a and 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What's with this guy? What is it? What's he love? Is this the voice of a... A legal nerd, a neek, that's a new word I learned this, this week. Neek is someone who's a niche expert in something. And, uh, you know, do you, do you read the T's and C's? Maybe if it's a car rental in Palestine, you might. Um, but I'm not sure I would. And then when it comes to biblical law, it's quite a lot. And while I'm eating my muesli, I don't really feel like I want to read about laws on bathroom habits. It's not really my favorite reading. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's 613 following laws in the Mosaic laws of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's a lot. Not my usual daily reading on toilet habits and cleanliness. I've probably had a shower already, maybe. So what's going on? How do we read this? What is there to love? Law and promises. Law and promises. What of law and promises? The things about T's and C's is... Is there a necessary evil? So let's say you sign a mortgage as a hope of a place to live. If you uh, go on holiday, it's the hope of something to come. So we went away at the end of last year. Uh, I, like, uh, I like doing DIY holidays. I'm not big on package deals because I've got more than two kids, so nothing works. And uh, 
I do the Airbnb thing. It's great. I've got this really good Airbnb. Oh, but it's, it's in Europe. So now I need a cheap short-haul flight. So I get the flight. Now I need airport parking. Okay, now I get to the other end. I've got no car. So I need a hire car. But then when you do hire cars, there's these complicated rental agreements. So I get this really good deal on this other backup insurance from another company. Then I get buyback on my euros. And finally... I might just get to get in the car and get my kids out ready for the holiday and the promise of what's to come. But I'm still legislating because I've legislated and my daughter has to reduce her baggage because I'm going to get fined. And my son can't ne- sit next to his sister at six in the morning because he's just going to drive her mad before we've even got anywhere. And in a little way, this is where we're at this morning. We've come through a long journey. If you follow the series we're doing, if you're a visitor, we're going through the book of Exodus, really, from Genesis through into Exodus. And the children of Israel are about to receive a promise, the promised land. We started in the garden where it went wrong and God covered their shame, Genesis 3. We had the flood. Noah trusted God's salvation through judgment and entered covenant with God. We have the sacrifice, the covenant with Abraham. And God promises to make a nation and a land to dwell in. The great I am, Exodus. He initiates relationship with Moses and draws his people out of Egypt. The Passover, sacrificial lamb, the rescue where he redeems and saves through water. So this is a really long time in coming. Last week, the provider, he's shown his people so recently how he can provide for them sustenance in the desert. And so they have this whole history behind them, but what now? He's got them so far, and we stand before a mountain in the desert of Sinai, and this is Exodus 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders and the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a desert cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them, and tomorrow, and today, 
Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. And so God unfolds the law. The next passage famously is the unfolding of the Ten Commandments. So what is it? What is there to love? There's a very real fact here that these laws were kind of a a minimum viable criteria for a functioning society. They're going to go and live with each other. So these practical issues are really critical. There's actually even a situational element to law. So if you're a real neek and you go and compare the law, the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy with what we see in Exodus, there's even changes, even in that short period of time. It's the word land. You don't cover land. It's hard to do that in the desert, but when you get in and you've got the land, you don't cover each other's land. So they're situational. And while that kind of helps us explain the practical issues of cleanliness, moral code, it doesn't explain sacrifice. What's with the sacrifice? We're going to dig in next week at the temple. But to read on into these long books of law is to read God's call for holiness, achieved only through the cleansing of blood through sacrifice. There's a lot of sacrifice to please God. Burnt offering, devotion, grain offering, giving from our blessing, drink offerings, you pour out your life to God. Fellowship offering, celebrating the blessing. Sin offering, critically, the blood offering, which is the sacrifice for our sin, the guilt offering, which is about relationships. And again and again, the law is expounded. And God says, be holy, because I am holy. Leviticus 11, 44, 19, 2, 20, verse 7. Because to stay in covenant with God, you need to be righteous or holy. Never mind law. John Piper says this. Most of us are in a deadly dream world most of the time when it comes to how seriously we're in trouble with God because of our sin. We worry more about being stopped by a policeman for speeding than we do about the seriousness of sin. But sin is infinitely serious. And God's anger at sinners is the biggest problem in everyone's life, whether we know it or not. It's serious. But in preparing for the preach... I wanted to kind of engage with this story a bit more. I, kind of, I wanted to really stir myself with the Old Testament. And, you know, what happened? Standing on this epic moment of inheritance in history. So I wanted to experience this a bit. And the historicity is important to me. Was this real people, real things? How did that go? So I found an expert to help um, these guys, this is Day One Tours. Uh, you can find them online. I really strongly encourage you to go away and find out about them. These guys do free tours of the British Museum. Uh, you can find them online. You can buy the book online. I booked one particularly orientated towards the kids as well. And these guys have taken some of the best of the things that historians, scholars, archaeologists 
have found and they highlight it for you. So what do we find? I just I do not have time to tell you. It's amazing, actually, what you can see. We didn't have time to go to do the Egypt bit where we see this cult of sun worship, statue of bulls and animals. And Moses writes in Genesis of how you're not to worship the sun because God made the sun. The context of Genesis 1. You see the riches of Egypt that Exodus 12.35 says the Israelites plundered. I read online, I didn't get to the Brooklyn Museum, but how about the list, a preparous scroll of slaves that contains the name Shifra, the Hebrew slave, mentioned in Exodus 1.15, a slave midwife. How about the Balwat Gates, recreated in the British Museum, adorned with pictures of violent mutilation from the upset city rulers? Pretty scary if you're Noah. We saw the black limestone obelisk of King Shalmaneser, 859 BC, the earliest known images of the Israelites. A picture and direct reference to King Jehu, who's named on it. 2 Kings 9.1. What about the wall relief? The capture of the Israelite city, Ashtaroth, King Pul of Assyria, recorded in 1 Chronicles 5.26. Amazing whole room of wall reliefs showing King Sennacherib's defeat of the city of Lakshish, the crowning victory in the war against the Judean walled cities in Hezekiah's reign. 2 Kings 18 and 19, read it. He boasts on a prism in room 55 in the British Museum of how he trapped King Hezekiah like a bird in a cage, shut up in Jerusalem with all the cities destroyed. But a bit like Instagram, he doesn't record the following battle where the angel of Lord destroys the army. We saw the beautiful coloured wall tile relief of a lion from King Nebuchadnezzar's palace, fired in a furnace, a picture of a lion, Amazing connections. And you can put your hand on the glass centimetres away from a big drinking bowl inscribed with King Artaxerxes' name. Most probably, Nehemiah held that as cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah 2, 1 and 2. Next to it, the Cyrus Cylinder that records the policy of King Cyrus to allow those who were captured as slaves in Babylon to return and rebuild their homes and temples, Ezra 1, 1 to 3. Now, I'm not off topic because I went to see law. I was interested. Is there any artifact? And I didn't get a lot. And I, kind of, I turned to the guy at the end of that. I said, is there anything to do with law? Can you think of anything? So I'll email you. But far from being disappointed, I was quite amazed at that personal touch. It's incredible how personal and living this was. You get to feel these characters. There's other things I haven't even told you about because we're short of time. It's not a book of outdated commandments. It's not a book of law. It's a book of people's stories. Dealing with God and about God's plan for mankind. But if I was eager to see how it worked out, 
for all the laws and guidelines God had given to Israel as they stood on the threshold to inheriting greatness, this great promise and land, if they did it his way. It's this story of a real bloody mess of battle, mistake, triumphs, rescues, slavery, high points, low points. It's kind of sad to see these characters. My kids drew this picture. Three Israeli men being carted off into captivity, their worldly possessions in a sack on their back. Law and promises. They had sold themselves to foreign gods. They had not done anything like what God had required. See, the problem with law is that it just shows up the condition of man's heart. Whilst it might atone for sin, it doesn't solve the problem of sin in man's heart. Law just highlights our failings. And if you go back to Genesis, God says in verse 5, 6 verse 5, how great the wickedness of the human race had become. Every inclination and thought of the human heart is only evil all of the time. And in that reign of kings and prophets that came after the promises were unfolded to Israel with the law, Jeremiah laments that same thing. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. I think I told you that at my conference there's this guy who's like a historian and futurist. He spoke about the folly of prediction and how there's always these unintended consequences. But I think if you look at the book of Exodus and then read the history of God's people, I don't know if you're going to be that hopeful. It's a bit of a pattern. No matter how much God legislates, people fail. No matter how hard we try to keep ourselves pure, time and again, we are subject to his wrath. People who were set free so frequently fell into captivity. What of God's call? A treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. But you see, God was already at work. He was already preparing to do something else. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds And write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I don't know if you know much about my background, but Sarah and I were brought up in a church movement that came very much from its roots in Wesleyan holiness tradition. Law to me has this great connection with holiness. Are you holy? But it has a tendency for me to be like a cold bony finger that time and again just points 
at that thing in your life, that imperfection, the little spots and wrinkles. It really is a hard taskmaster. It will always find fault. That creates huge mental pressure and anguish if we really submit to that. In Romans 7, Paul talks about the law as a bad husband. The poor wife tries, but she's scolded and scolded until she's really miserable. But it's only after Christ's death that we are released and set free to a better husband in Christ. Very beautifully expressed, Paul writes this in Romans 7. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus. My holiday was full of terms and conditions. It's all these things I did to try and make the holiday right. I wanted to make sure it's going to be good, all the way through to the travel insurance to cover all of the other policies. Terms and conditions on a journey. Is it going to be all right? 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Doesn't sound like terms and conditions to me. Jesus said that he fulfilled the law, not because he removed it or took it away, but because he gave it its full meaning. In understanding the sacrifice and the need for holiness, we see Christ's perfect atonement. That's what he says in Matthew 5.17 as he completes the law. It doesn't remove it, but he completes it. 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter, the law kills, but the spirit gives life. It's really crucial if you read the Ten Commandments to reflect on what the first commandment is. Now it depends because some people actually read more than ten. I think it's easy to be deceived that there's a set of terms and conditions, God's blessings. But you see, the opening of the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel was this in Exodus 20 verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It tells us that even then, even before the law was given, 
It told us what God had done. Freedom from slavery came before law. We see all of the grace that God extended before the covenants. And law is this narrative. It's not a moral code. It's a narrative of how we should live. It's a story of how we should live with God, who wants relationship, revealing to us who he is, that man would receive his salvation. I think it's a little bit more towards what the psalmist says when he speaks of loving law, because he understands the story. A story of God calling man into relationship with him and relying on him before law for his salvation. So I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish just by reading in prayer some of the words from Psalm 119 and just praying for us. And I just challenge you how much you love God's law. Do you love his law? In the New Testament, that can be so broad. It can be the whole of Scripture. But unquestionably, it's the sacrifice that Christ made. Let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks for your law. It's a hard taskmaster. But I thank you that we were washed. We were cleansed. We were sanctified. Thank you for that provision. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider your laws. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me and teach me your law. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding, that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statues and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes from worthless things and preserve my life according to your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in you.